Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 253. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Here today with a friend of the show, Mr. Joe Hannon. Joe, how's it going? It's going great, Steve. It was, uh, it's been an interesting week on the mats. I have my video on right now, so you can probably see that my right eye is pretty colorful. Pretty gnarly corneal abrasion that I'm recovering from. We were supposed to record this last week. I couldn't do it because I all I could do was sit in a dark room with sunglasses on. Market improvement over where we were last week. I should probably ask, what happened to your eye in the first place? White belt? No, actually, just a really tough purple belt. I was passing his half guard and I kind of like to pass low and he didn't do anything untoward. I just kind of caught his knee in my eye. But then second to last round of the evening, there were there was a blue belt and a white belt training next to me doing stand up work on a very crowded mat and one of them like did a break fall on my face and that was it hit the exact same spot and that's kind of what tore my cornea so that could have been avoided <laughs> i have had corneal abrasions training as well it is a very scary injury you know whenever something happens to your eye it's always scary so glad to know that you're on the mend and getting better man no, thank you. Thank you. Well, hey, maybe we can use that as a segue. Why don't you tell everyone about yourself, other than the fact that you uh, have one good eye? Anything else that the listeners should know about you? <laughs> what should I know about myself? Uh, that's a great question, too. I guess the sort of the highlight reel, if there is a highlight reel, is that I'm one of the partners at Princeton Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So one of the people that owns the school with Emily Kwok. Emily Kwok and I also work very closely together in the peak consulting space with a guy named Josh Waitskin, where we kind of get into the technical, the psychological, as well as um, some other sort of like softer dimensions of what makes people perform optimally. Yeah, that's kind of what I do for a living. I'm also the host of BJJ Meditations, which is a podcast that's kind of about the intersection of stoicism and the martial arts, specifically Brazilian jiu-jitsu. A dad, a two-year-old son and a wife, very happily married here in New Jersey. Say so those are those are the finer points. Nice. I guess one other thing to point out is for those who are on premium, they will have been very familiar with your voice because you co-host the highest levels, one of the premium podcasts we have featuring yourself and Emily Kwok. Really awesome series of conversations. But yeah, I've been looking forward to having you on here between that and BJJ Meditations. I find your takes to be one of the more interesting ones in the martial arts because you do focus a lot on the philosophical side yeah. of things rather than just the technique side of things, but more about what jujitsu means as part of your life. That's always a fun thing to talk about. So with that said, I know that that was kind of the topic here. If you want to introduce it, we can get this kicked off. Yeah, sure. So I think as you're, you're right, Steve, like one of my differentiators as a person in the space is that I'm not super concerned with the tactical and the technical side of things. Like I'm pretty competent black belt 
you know, if you come and take my classes at Princeton BJJ, I'm pretty confident that I can make you a better fighter. But I think where I excel is sort of using jujitsu as a vehicle for improving your life holistically. And holistically is kind of one of those soft, squishy words that gets thrown around a lot and sets off a lot of people's bullshit detectors. But I think that, you know, incorporating a philosophical bend to your martial arts training can really improve your life holistically. And I say that as somebody who has kind of taken that on myself and have seen the results. And, you know, the people I coach, whether they realize it or not, they're getting some of the same and they're getting some of the benefits. They just might not be aware of it. And I think kind of what clarified this idea for me in terms of giving life to BJJ meditations and informing my work in the peak consulting space with Emily is that, you know, a lot of us say that the beginning of what gave rise to this idea was that a lot of us kind of get into jujitsu or a martial art or even something like CrossFit. We're not really sure why. Maybe there's some sort of low level goal attached to it. I don't mean low level in a pejorative sense when I'm about to give these examples. Like maybe the lower level goal was you wanted to lose weight or you wanted to defend your, learn how to defend yourself, whatever, you know, that's the thing that got you in the door. But I think more often than not, the thing that gets you to black belt is not that thing that got you in the door. And when you really think about what that thing is, it's rooted in this real deep human need to evolve and to become more than you were already. And that's kind of where we get into these softer philosophical areas that that's kind of like, that's my end of the pool. That's where I like to swim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's something that I think is very relatable to a lot of people who are more experienced in the art. For me, I am that guy you described when I started jujitsu. I got into it for self-defense, right? Probably yep. one of the most common reasons why I think people get into Brazilian jujitsu. I discovered a bunch of auxiliary benefits like fitness, meeting new friends, developing confidence. I never went down the competitive route, but for a lot of people, they get meaning through that. But like you said, those are kind of the incentives that will get you in the door. And that's a big door to go through. For many people, starting Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu will be one of the most intimidating things they do in their whole life. So I don't want to downplay those motivations as being important because you'll never get to that black belt level unless you're motivated to come in the door in the first place. But at least for me, my motivation did change a lot as I got deeper into the sport. Um, things like self-defense became much less of a concern. I'm in my 40s now. I'm married with a kid. The odds of me getting into a bar fight, pretty slim, right? That just isn't the lifestyle that I lead. So I just, I really don't have the same kind of concerns I did when I was young and single. And self-defense for me is not a motivating factor. So what now, right? What now? When you've been doing this for 15 years, is that self-defense thing still going to be enough of a motivator to make you come in and get up and go to class every day or every week or whatever your cadence is? Probably not. For me, at least, I know that my motivations have changed a lot since I started. They've evolved a lot, and it hasn't always been an easy evolution. I've really doubted myself and questioned myself and questioned why I do this many times. But this isn't about me today. This is about you. So let's hear your journey. I know we talked about this just a bit on the highest levels recently, and I loved that episode with Emily, by the way, that you did. But maybe we can dig into that a bit here. Tell us your journey about discovering your why in the sport of jiu-jitsu. Yeah, sure. I came to Brazilian jiu-jitsu in this really directionless stage in my life. Like the only direction I had was I had achieved a pretty a respectable amount of success in my career at the time. Like I was, was a pretty high ranking editor at the biggest paper in the state of New Jersey, but that was it. My whole identity was kind of wrapped up in 
Joe newspaper man and being with my then fiance and my wife, that was the extent of me. And I just felt like there's more to life than this. And there was this guy also named Joe who worked with me at NJ Advanced Media. And the moment I met him, I knew this guy was on to something because he had cauliflower ears and at his desk, he had a picture photograph of the poet Amiri Baraka. So it's like, this is a guy I want to know because he seems like he's got his finger on the pulse of life. And just one day out of the blue, he asked me, hey, would you like to go and try Brazilian jiu-jitsu? And I literally knew next to nothing about it. I was kind of like a casual UFC fan, and I knew that jiu-jitsu was sometimes the thing that happened on the ground in cage fighting. So I said, sure, why not? And I went and I took this class, Performance Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Fairlawn, New Jersey. I believe Lou Vintaloro was one of the first black belts, if not the first black belt on the East Coast. So it's like one of the OG East Coast locations. And it's a great school. Lou is a great coach. But like, it's one of those schools where it's cops and criminals training. <laughs> it's just that milieu of people in the room. And I went, I took my first class. I got my ass kicked. I remember I trained the very first night. You know, I rolled rounds the first night, had no idea what I was doing. And I signed up on the spot. I just knew that I had found something that I was going to fall in love with very deeply. And, you know, superficially, my why at the time was, I think, trying to get into better shape, trying to find something to do, trying to find some source of identity, some sense of self in this sport, in this point in my life. Um, and then like on a lower level, it was like, I've just been kind of working out all through college and all through my professional career. And it just, for lack of a better term, it just feels kind of masturbatory to like go into the gym and have big muscles and like not know how to use them. This kind of gave my body and my training a purpose on sort of a, a lower level. So that's kind of what got me in the door. When I moved down to central New Jersey and started training under Emily, I was really attracted to competition. And the thing you realize as a competitor in your early 20s, mid 20s, is just how cutthroat and high level the competition can be. I only had like a year, I think, at adult. And I wanted out of those adult divisions as fast as I could because I'm a professional at the time, a married man with a house, a mortgage, the whole nine yards. And I just don't have the time to be training that much. So going into a stacked blue belt division with these kids who are training like doubles for seven days a week is just not a prospect that I can entertain. So briefly, my why was competition, but then that kind of fell apart on me. I remember after the New York Open at Blue Belt, just getting in my car for that long drive from, it's way uptown in Manhattan, I want to say it's like in Harlem, all the way down to central New Jersey and just thinking like, what did I get myself into? Why am I killing myself over this? So I was kind of like a little bit lost there for a while, but eventually as I got into my purple belts, the community kind of became my why. This band of brothers and sisters, this iron sharpening iron. Competition was still a part of it, but it was more about like going through that experience of shared deprivation together. It was less outcome oriented around competition. And then of course, COVID came and that community got ripped out from under my feet. I always kind of have thought of myself, Steve, as like in kind of a loner, kind of, you know, introverted. I'm very comfortable spending a lot of time by myself, but man, not having my social connections in the form of my BJJ school available to me 
I was on some psychologically rocky ground <laughs> with many people in the world at the time, just from the isolation. So that kind of clarified that aspect, the community aspect as part of my why. But as things started to get funky politically and socially in the U.S. throughout the pandemic, I began to sort of realize that there was actually something much bigger going on here. And I think it has a lot to do with how we make sense of things, how we make sense of the world. And I realized that jujitsu was kind of a way for me to make meaning in a world where nothing made sense, right? Like you all of a sudden you couldn't go outside because you might die. Like <laughs> the skills by which you make sense of that situation, that highly dynamic situation, it's not a direct translation. Navigating chaos, jujitsu teaches you how to navigate chaos. I really think that COVID-19 and the pandemic especially kind of opened my eyes to like, oh, this is really about higher level sense making. Like, yeah, on the ground level, jujitsu is a martial art, but really you can train this thing thematically and apply it to your life and apply to how you think about things and how you relate to people. So that's kind of the evolution of my why, bringing you up to the present. Now I'm definitely more interested, like I'm super interested in the technical aspects of the game. Like I just fought at Masters Worlds and I'm just on fire with like sharpening up my game, sharpening up my technical acumen. You know, I want to dominate one day and Masters level black belt. But like really where I think I can help people is in helping them figure out like how you can use this tool to improve your life across the board. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Great story. I can definitely relate. I kind of have two different lives, right? During the day, I have a, a regular job, but during the evenings and off hours, my secret identity is this jujitsu podcast guy, right? <laughs> so two very different worlds, working in software and technology, but then also practicing this very physical, social sport. Um, they are quite different. You know, you talked about the pandemic. I noticed this myself as well. When COVID-19, the pandemic happened, I kind of saw these two different worlds experience it differently. During the day, you know, as a software person, it's still hard. I don't want to make light of the situation. I mean, it was tremendously stressful for everyone to go through um, the pandemic, to have to dial down our social interactions. Human beings are not wired to do that. And it was tremendously hard, no matter how introverted you are. However, if you work in tech, you're probably working with a lot of introverted people who can probably do most of their job remotely. So that's a pretty blessed situation to be in when a pandemic happens. Flip the coin around and you've got jujitsu people, right? You've got people whose passion for life in a lot of cases, and I'm not just talking about hobbyists, I'm talking about pro competitors, gym owners, people who literally their livelihood depends on this sport, right? Everything they love is now gone. They can't make money. Their social circles are disbanded. I can understand why aspects of that community went absolutely insane during that time, right? It's a lot of pressure to put people in. <laughs> that doesn't mean everyone made great decisions all the time, but I can understand, right? So much was taken away from people. And like you, you know, especially in the last few years, I've really rethought what is my why for jujitsu? Something you touched on earlier is you talked about how you started jujitsu because in some ways it was an identity thing. And I can relate to that, right? I got into jujitsu because of self-defense. But if I'm being completely, totally honest, it's probably less that I wanted to be able to defend myself and more that I wanted to be perceived as the kind of person who could defend himself. Or I wanted to be able to identify as a martial artist. That was probably the thing that got me up and up to where I would say maybe brown belt, right? Just the desire to make that part of my identity. And then after, you know, eight years or so in the sport, things changed a lot for me. 
And I kind of had a bit of a jujitsu existential crisis. And I actually walked away from the sport for quite a while. And I didn't really come back until I was able to square away what jujitsu means to me now. And I realized that maybe relying on it as part of my identity was not a good thing. Um, You know, there's the old Henzo quote about how jujitsu isn't his whole life, but it makes his life whole. And I think maybe that's a, a good approach to take, right? There's a lot of people, especially in the beginning, who, you know, quite literally fall in love with jujitsu and it very quickly takes over their life. I always make fun of people on the podcast who they start jujitsu and within three months they've added BJJ to their Instagram handle and they're like, they've got those like casual sport blue belts you can wear with your jeans so you can wear your collared belt when you're out and about doing regular person stuff. It very much does take over your life. And it took a while for me to reprioritize and recontextualize what jujitsu meant to me. And I'm curious to know if that's something that happened to you as well, if you've had to kind of change your perspective and your relationship with the sport over the years. I mean, I have, when I became a father, you know, it, that changed just the time constraints and the amount I wanted to train and, and all that. But my identity going into it, like my desire to train was informed by Something I've kind of chased my whole life, and it's to be this, it's almost like it's a literary trope. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but it's the capable man. There's this famous quote, maybe we can put it in the show notes or something like that, where it's like the capable man should be able to like, it's all this ridiculous stuff. Change a oh, tire. yeah, like change a tire. Change a baby's diaper. Kill three criminals attacking him. And I know, I know the quote. Exactly. You know, and I think that there's something looking at that from a pure utilitarian perspective and not even just to put like a masculine frame around it. I think capability is certainly like a good human quality, but like if it's your defining characteristic, then you're just a tool. (laughs) You're just a multi-tool, right? And it totally strips away the depth and profundity of human connection, of empathy, of love, of emotion. You know, I would like to think that we're more than just like tools. I always laugh because my son really likes Thomas the Tank Engine and the engines are always boasting about how useful they are. I think there's a lot more to life than being useful. But, you know, we'll say this. I want to circle back to your point about sort of like the zealotry that some people come to this sport with, like the newly converted. I'm using these terms quite intentionally because I really do think there's like, there's a religiosity to it that I find that never quite manifested in me, but I've certainly noticed it in other people. Like, I had this bizarre experience where I was at Masters Worlds and I was trying to get the new show your roll gi that's like the one and only gi that's competition legal under the <laughs> IBJJF rules next year. And I like show your roll products, but I, I wouldn't say I'm like a show your roll fanboy. Like I don't buy every single gi that they produce. I don't trade them on the on the black market or anything like that. But, you know, it was purely utilitarian. Like I'm here, I'm going to get this thing if I can. And this guy gets online behind me and I'm hung over as hell. And this guy is just on his like fifth or sixth coffee or crack or whatever. He's very animated. It might have been both. <laughs> and he has the belt on that you're talking about. I'm not exaggerating. He He's wearing this belt. And he's telling me about how, you know, he joined jujitsu and he lost all this weight and he trains all this time. And, you know, I'm here with my kids and they're doing jujitsu con. And I was supposed to do the uh, Masters Worlds, but I can't because my, I like got this guy's whole life story in the God knows how many hours I was online waiting for this key. And the whole time I'm sitting there in my semi-delirious state thinking like, yeah, this is what happens when you make a religion of this thing. You know, like this is what happens when your identity gets so wrapped up in jujitsu. I think that's a big reason why the energy is a little bit different at Masters Worlds 
is because at the master's level, a lot of the people who are there fighting, they have big lives. They have, maybe they have families, maybe they have a spouse and maybe they have other experiences. Like I think about Cynthia Fink, who's on our team, who won her division. She was in and out in Vegas as fast as she could be and was off exploring whatever, you know, geographic features she wanted to go check out in the West with her husband. That's what she and him do. They travel all over the country. She does competitions and they go check out national parks. They go check out rock formations. They go hiking. I think they did this amazing Jeep tour, off-road Jeep adventure type tour. And I think that there, if you let jujitsu become your whole identity like that, you run the risk of having a very small life. And I think that jujitsu can be immensely rewarding. I think that it's a worthwhile pursuit. I think that more people should do it, frankly. I obviously have financial incentives for more people to do jujitsu. I believe in its power to transform your life. But I really think that Henzo Gracie quote is beautiful. Like it it should be a wonderfully rich component of a well-rounded and beautiful life. I don't think it should be your whole identity. I don't think you should be wearing one of those belts out in public. Yeah. And just for the listeners out there, you know, when I tease people for this obsessive blue belt jujitsu stuff, it comes from a place of love because sure. I was absolutely that guy. Like <laughs> for those who don't know these belts that we're talking about online, you can buy these colored belts that look like jujitsu ranked kimono belts but they're intended to be worn for on the street, right? So the idea is instead of putting on a leather or fabric belt like a normal person, you basically put on your jeans and then you put on like your colored jujitsu belt over top of it and you wear it down the street so everyone knows that you're a, a jujitsu blue belt and therefore a total badass. And I absolutely bought one of those belts when I was younger. I will not lie. <laughs> it's probably still sitting around the house somewhere. So, you know, when I tease people about this, it's because I was that guy. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> Many of us went through that phase. And that is something with jujitsu that I did struggle with was getting to the point where I realized it can't be my whole identity. And there's downsides to it being my whole identity. And what else do I have? And recontextualizing jujitsu was definitely something that I struggled with for a while as well. I think jujitsu is at its best when it's something that adds value to your life, but it doesn't steer your life completely, right? Yeah. I've seen so many athletes over the years make highly irrational decisions around their health and their bodies. And, you know, one of my biggest priorities as a martial artist is longevity. Like, I want to be able to do this. I think my only shot, Steve, of winning a master's division is to just outage everybody. So that's my goal, damn it, you know? If I win at 85, then, you know, I'll prove it to everybody that I'll prove this point to everybody. But yeah, you just shouldn't, your body shouldn't be totally wrecked at 35. You know, like if you're running yourself down that hard, like if you're both your knees are ripped up and you're still coming to train, like you gotta ask yourself, what's going on here? Is this an addiction? Is this some sort of identity problem? You know, I've seen this time and time again, and I think it's just a manifestation of exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. That is something that my instructor once said as well. Um, well, my pre-Emily instructor once said was he said his goal in jujitsu more than anything, not to build champions, but to make sure that you can get deep into the ranks here without any serious catastrophic injury. The wellness aspect of jujitsu and staying healthy is so important. And especially at the junior level, the younger level, you do see a lot of really dumb trade-offs where people are, they're doing serious damage to their own health in the hopes of some sort of short-term win. But the long-term expense that they're going to have to pay, I think, is probably something they're, they're going to regret. People like Emily, people like Rafael Lovato Jr., I love talking to and listening to these people because they talk a lot about kind of that timeless martial philosophy and getting value out of the sport, not just 
winning $5 plastic medals that you can post on Instagram, but actually using jujitsu as a vehicle for personal growth. You mentioned this earlier. You talked about how that's how you view jujitsu. Over the years, my definition of jujitsu has changed a lot. You know, if you asked White Belt Steve, what is Brazilian jujitsu? I'd probably say something like, it's the Brazilian art of submission wrestling and breaking bones, right? And, and then at some point, I kind of adapted that to be more conceptual. And if you listen to the early days of BJJ Mental Models, you'll hear me talk about this. And you'll hear me say things like, jujitsu is a game of, you know, maintaining your alignment while breaking your opponents. And mechanically speaking, that is true. That is true. But if you were to ask me what jujitsu really is, like the thing that's actually going to stick with you when everything else peels away due to time, jujitsu is a vehicle for personal growth. Yes, there's aspects of self-defense and fitness and networking and challenging yourself. But for the vast majority of people who ever step onto the mats, the piece about it that changes their life, it's not going to be winning a gold medal. It's going to be, you know, the friends they made along the way, so to speak, right? That's the thing that often really matters to people. Yeah, I'm 100% there with you. Like when I think about some of my best memories on the mats, they're, I mean, it'd be totally transparent. Like I don't have any super amazing comp wins or anything like that, but I can look back on countless open mats on Sunday morning with like the core group of people that I train with where we have an amazing training session and this is pre-children, so we're hanging out, bullshitting for a good half hour, hour after class, just cracking jokes. And, you know, like you sweat, you shed blood with these people, you go through the fire with these people, and you form these amazing bonds. And those are my best memories. It's not the fact that I mastered X-Guard, or it's not the fact that, like, I have this really great setup from Delaheva. No, it's the quality of the relationships and the understanding of myself that I've developed on the journey. And the fact that there's still more to come. I mean, isn't that amazing? You know, that we can, under the right circumstances, if we take care of ourselves, like we can do this for such a long time. And the learning can continue. The growth can continue. Like it's not a finite game. I mean, I suppose it's a finite game, game in the sense that we're all going to die. So we have to play it. But it's not like you get the black belt and it stops. Like it just keeps going. I mean, people say it starts all over again. Like to me, there never was a stop. Like it just, you just keep walking the path. Yeah. The belt is kind of an arbitrary thing in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't know about you. I, I'm kind of down on the belt system because I think it makes people focus on the wrong priority sometimes. They look at black belt as this insurmountable obstacle. And then once they get it, now it's the beginning of the journey again. But you're right. It, the journey yeah. never ended. It was just one big continuous journey. That is the thing about the belt is I think that people can put too much weight on it. On that note, though, when we talk about the blue belt blues, I think everyone knows that what that means, right? Just the, whether it's true or not, the perceived propensity of people to quit <laughs> when they hit blue belt. Um, there's probably a lot of reasons why that happens, right? A, a big part of it is I think a lot of people, their goal was maybe never to hit black belt. Their goal was just to not be a white belt anymore. And for a lot of people who just kind of wanted to dab their toes into this, doing it for a few years and getting a blue belt is good enough. That's totally respectable. But I think for a lot of other people, part of the reason why they probably leave is because all of their friends left, right? Because I remember this very, very vividly. I had so much fun when I was a white belt. I met all of these new people. I met the woman who would go on to become my wife and the mother of my child, right? So very magical experience to meet all of these people. Then you all get your blue belts. And one by one, it's like a murder mystery where people just keep disappearing. You, know, you come in one day and then someone's gone and you never see them again, right? And it whittles down. And I think when you consider jujitsu through the lens of a social activity, you can understand how demoralizing that can be, right? More than getting my ass kicked by purples and brown belts, what's demoralizing is to see my friends go, 
right? Because that's that was, whether I realized it or not, a big part of the reason why I came here in the first place. So blue belt quitting is contagious, is my theory. I will substantiate your theory, Steve. I, I you know, Facebook, it, it periodically will remind you of a photo from X many years ago. And I, I saw a photo from, I don't know how long ago, it was maybe five or six years ago when I was a blue belt. And it was an afternoon open mat. So there were about 10 of us and six out of 10 were no longer with us. <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming they're still alive out there somewhere, but their jujitsu journey has ended. And I want to say like all of them were blue belts. And it's remarkable to see. I think what was especially funny about that photo was that the other people in the photo, two of the other people in the photo who were with me, one was the uh, woman, Maddie, who I got my black belt with, and the other was her now fiance who got his black belt like a year ago. So I guess those who make it past blue belt, your, your chances of getting a black belt must go up some exponential level based yeah, on that yeah. small sample size. I think once you get to blue belt, probably the drop off rate becomes a lot smaller, right? If yeah. someone gets to blue belt and they want to stick through it to make it to purple, there's a real good chance they're going to just keep going, right? Yeah. Whereas for a lot of people, they get to blue belt, they check that box that they wanted to check. Maybe other things come up in life and jujitsu just wasn't enough of a priority to hang around. Maybe they lose their passion. Maybe they're sad with seeing all of their friends quit. But yeah, I think blue belt is the big attrition point. But if you can get past that hump and make it to purple, I think then that's where those are the people who are going to be lifers. Yep, I agree with you. Purple belt's a fun belt too. Like there's, you've achieved a, like a really strong foundation of technical acumen, but there's no pressure. Like the expectations aren't super high. Once you get that brown belt, there are some expectations on your shoulders, whether you like it or not. Yeah. So for you purple belts out there, enjoy it. It's a great belt. It's a good color. It looks good, especially if you have blue eyes. Good combination. Enjoy your purple belt, folks. Really, I always found purple to be the hardest to color coordinate. I know a lot of people are fans, <laughs> but I mean, I can't rock that with like a blue gi. It kind of only looks good with a white or maybe a black gi. You know, maybe it's just certain shades of blue. This would be a good question for Emily since she has that artistic eye. I defer to her. So I do Jamie, a guy on our team does a lot of our graphic design. I do some of it too. But whenever we get into like color palette issues, I'm like, I have no idea. I'm just going to ask Emily what colors I should use. So We'll ask Emily about this purple belt color coordination question and she'll tell us what we need to know. Something else I want to expand on here. You mentioned earlier that you and Emily both work closely with Josh Waitskin. Listeners to this podcast are very likely going to be familiar with who Josh is. We've been talking about his work since maybe as far back as episode one of this podcast. Uh, yep. BJJ Mental Models is very much inspired by the work of Josh Waitskin. And we've talked many times about his strategies for optimizing learning and achieving superior performance. But something I wonder is, in the study of peak performance, where does this pursuit of your why come up? How does that fit in? Because that isn't something I've heard Josh talk about a lot, kind of your internal motivation. It's just kind of, I think, often assumed that for a high-level competitor, that motivation is just yeah. built in and they've just got it. But I would want to know your thoughts on, when we do talk about these peak performance frameworks, where does your motivation fit in? And is that something that people can deliberately cultivate and improve? Yeah, so I think you're right. Like, it doesn't come up in the peak performance space much because most of the people we work with have, they might not even understand it, but they have like a very deep burning why. And for many of them, it's been with them for as long as they can remember. Maybe it's a deep competitive drive that they've had since they were a child, but you know, not everybody's like that. And I really enjoy working with those people 
right? I mean, it's amazing to be that close to the fire and to be on the bleeding edge of whatever sector we're working in and to kind of steal some of their fire. But I also, during the pandemic, I spent just a lot of time thinking about what about this vast middle? What about all the people right now, we're going back to 2020, who have no idea how to make sense, like all of their vehicles for sense making, whether it be the state, government, whether it be religion, whether it be science, all of these things came into question all at once. And those people, you know, regardless of how motivated you are to solve the problem, it's kind of an intractable problem. It's a very complex problem. And we're not necessarily equipped with the skills to navigate that level of chaos and complexity. So yeah, certainly in the peak performance space, like those people, they're very clear on their why. And in many cases, they're very clear on their how too. But I think that a lot of the people who walk into your average jujitsu school in America or in Canada, in your case, they're probably not so clear on their why. I think it kind of helps just to understand why we're not clear on our why. I really think a lot of this, a lot of what I'm about to say draws from the thinking and the work of John Verveke, who's this brilliant, I believe he's a neuroscientist at the University of Toronto. He did this amazing YouTube series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis that I highly suggest everybody check out. It's like up to 50 episodes long and each one's like an hour, but they're amazing. And I really think that a lot of this goes all the way back to Martin Luther and kind of the, after that, you know, the death of God, like the state kind of took on this role that God had fulfilled in our lives. And then to some degree, science and rationality became this vehicle for this God status. And in sort of discarding religion, we've threw out the baby with the bathwater, the baby here being communitas, relationships, heart-centered ways of knowing, spiritual ways of knowing, like all these soft things that probably are making a lot of the more scientifically-minded people in your audience right now cringe. These are real human qualities that we've had for millennia. And I think that you might come to a jiu-jitsu school and think that it's the desire to get fit that's going to keep you there or think it that you just want to be the toughest person in the room or you want to survive a bar fight. But ultimately what's going to keep you there are these deeper qualities of the human condition. And I think that there's a beautiful side to that. We can form these wonderful relationships. We can develop these skills. We can develop this thematic training where we can navigate chaos and complexity and uncertainty on the mats and in our lives in situations like a pandemic situations like political unrest, whatever, you know, we learn how to shift and adapt to change. But there's also a shadow side to that where you see this in the religious-like obsession with stuff like diets. Like you really want to start a fight online, voice a strong opinion about a diet. Carnivore diet is wonderful, for example, or the keto diet is terrible. Go on X, what used to be Twitter, and tweet that and see what kind of reaction you get. But, you know, I've seen a similar vibe in CrossFit. I've seen a similar vibe in Jiu-Jitsu. And we've seen all sorts of unsavory shit come out of these cult of personality type schools where somebody who is not an ethical player takes advantage of their student, does something frankly evil. So I guess like my question is, how do we latch on to the good of Jiu-Jitsu without turning it into a cult? And how do we help people kind of find the greater meaning through the sport without creating another religion? I don't know if that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. And that's a really interesting thought here. I never, when I started this sport, I never would have thought that I would be giving someone who is effectively a gym teacher 
that much control over me as a person, right? I came into jujitsu basically thinking that, you know, the guy wearing the black belt was my gym teacher, right? But very soon you get drawn into this cult of personality and these rituals. And, you know, before you know it, you can get caught up in these arguments about loyalty. Mm -hmm. The thing is, there is a lot of unearned authority that comes with being the gym coach, with being the, the black belt ranking who is teaching the class. And you as the instructor can wind up having a significant downstream impact on your students. And I think to your point, it it behooves anyone who's teaching to really be clear about what their why is, because little things that you say and do will cause ripple impacts onto your students that could change the course of their training for decades or forever, right? And that's just something that you need to be aware of. There is a lot of unearned responsibility that comes with being the person running the class. I don't know if it's just something inherent to the martial arts and what they are, but it's a very different relationship from just having a teacher or a trainer or a tutor or even a gym coach. The relationship between a student and their jujitsu instructor is a very unique and powerful relationship. Yeah, and I think it's because we're playing into, frankly, these areas that are traditionally the playground for spirituality and for religion in some regards too. Like We're pulling a lot of very sensitive and strong levers in the human psyche with this martial art. And, you know, I want to circle back to a phrase you used. It's, you said unearned regard, authority. I'm putting regard on there as in my language. I mean, that unearned regard, like that's your belief in unearned regard. That's by very definition of narcissism. It's a characteristic of somebody who is a narcissist. And like, if you don't have your finger on the pulse of your why as an instructor, That can creep in in a really insidious and ugly way. Say this all the time to our teachers in the school, like everything you say matters. And not only everything you say, how you say it matters. Every single word, every decision you make. Because as you said, Steve, you don't realize what an outsized impact you have on your students. Yeah, you absolutely don't until you've been there. I think part of the challenge of being a jujitsu coach, there's no onboarding or training process at most gyms to prepare you for that, to tell you that, look, whether it is your intent or not, you're going to become a role model for these people. If you do something that is dumb, people are going to look at that as a pattern for acceptable behavior. If something happens in the gym that is bad and you don't step in and take ownership of it and make it your problem, you know, you are now setting a standard for what is acceptable in the gym, especially if you're the instructor. And if you were to ask me, you know, why you see all of this unchecked abuse in jujitsu, I think a lot of it is just instructors who didn't have the understanding that they as the leader need to jump in and intervene, right? It's one thing if you're just a person and a student to try to distance yourself from the drama and just train quietly in the corner. But when you're the instructor, anytime you avoid intervening in a problem that happens in the gym, you're giving tacit permission for that problem to continue. So again, I think that especially as you get up the chain in jujitsu, you get more experienced and take on a, any sort of leadership role, it behooves you to start thinking about why you do this. Um, what are your standards? What are your values? What do you want to see out of your students? Um, something that Elliot Marshall has talked about. He's been on the podcast before. He's got my favorite definition for core values that I've ever heard. Core values, of course, anyone who's worked in corporate knows this term. It's the shit they put up on the wall to try to inspire their employees, but then they completely disregard it whenever it's convenient. That's not what core values are supposed to be. Elliot defines core values as What are you willing to lose friends and money over? 
basically what is the line where you would be willing to lose friends and money should someone cross that line? And I think that's a really good definition that's clear for a lot of people. I think anyone that's running a gym needs to have an understanding of what those values are, right? And what their why is, because that way, when something does happen, you're just much better equipped to deal with it. Yeah, it's so true. You know, we're actually in the process of codifying ours using process that Emily has used in her consulting work, which is really exciting. And yeah, I think it's hugely important to be very clear on that stuff. I mean, I, this is not a jujitsu example, but I had this art teacher when I was like, I must've been like eight or nine. And I remember her looking over my shoulder and looking at what I was creating. And she just said, well, some people just aren't artistic. I felt like so much of my creative life has just been about like burying her, you know, proving her (laughs) wrong. And I found artistry and creativity in all these other places, whether it was in music or writing, now in a martial art. And yes, so much of that was just because of this one little thing this woman said to me in passing, because maybe she was having a bad day or maybe she didn't like my attitude or something like that, but irreparably changed my life, ultimately in a positive way. But just think of that. She just casually made that remark and it uh, had like a 36 year old, 36 year ripple effect. Yeah. I mean, that's another reason why I think investing in learning how to coach is so important. Most jujitsu coaches kind of just get promoted up into that position, right? Just by belt rank and experience, they wind up having those opportunities offered to them within the gym, or maybe they go and create their own school. But in either situation, there isn't a training program on how to be a coach, right? No one sits you down and tells you, here are the teaching methodologies that you should use. Here's a bit of psychology that you can deploy with your students to try to motivate them and get the best results. Many teachers are exclusively focused on the technical side of things. You can walk into any jujitsu gym in the country and they will regurgitate to you any jujitsu technical minutia you want to know. But if the conversation gets a bit more touchy-feely, you're kind of going into uncharted territory. And I wonder, do you think that coaches would be better served trying to help their students identify their own whys versus just making their instruction a purely technical matter? Do you think coaches can go above and beyond just teaching arm bars and triangles and actually do, you know, real honest coaching? Or do you think it's better if teachers kind of stay in that technical box and don't deviate outside it? I think it's a matter of knowing yourself as an instructor and also knowing, more importantly, knowing the student, right? If this sort of coaching doesn't call to you and you haven't done the time and effort to hone your skills in this domain, then it's probably not for you. But also you need to be present to who the student is and what they want and what they need, what they verbalize in their terms of their desires and their needs. Because you might see the seed of something inside of them like has been planted, but it hasn't germinated yet. Like they're not conscious of it. And it's really not your place to like to force that on them. This is a tension I sit with a lot in our consulting work. For whatever reason, people with very similar dispositions as me are drawn to me in these coaching scenarios when we're working with companies. They, they like seek me out. And it's a real struggle of mine to, am I allowed to curse on this podcast, Steve? <laughs> Fucking go for it. Okay. It's a real struggle of mine not to put my shit on these other people because I get a sense for what might be impeding them. Like as I think I'm an empathic human being, it's, it's kind of impossible not to put myself in their shoes and then take a step back and kind of compare their experiences to my experiences. So the danger there is I'm putting 
my lens, like I'm viewing them through my lens and therefore my perspective is, is at least somewhat biased because it's coming from my experiences, my past, my beliefs. So it's very, very difficult to look at a student, observe them, listen to what they're saying, and actually try and figure out what's best for them in as unbiased a way as possible. So, you know, I would really say that if A, if it doesn't interest you as a coach to do this kind of work, then maybe it is best to stick to the technical side of things. But B, so much of it is knowing what the student wants and respecting their boundaries and also like what they can handle. You know, even if there are some people who come into this sport, I don't know why this is. And I say this as somebody who, you know, has clinical depression. It's been well managed for years, but jujitsu attracts people who are very often psychologically damaged. And you need to be present to the fact that you might be dealing with somebody who is better served by a mental health professional for this sort of work. Or maybe like, yeah, you might be totally out of your depth. So I say this to just highlight and underscore the seriousness of this kind of thing that we're talking about. Like this is, are we talking about helping somebody find a greater purpose through this martial art? Or are we talking about somebody with a mental illness? Because these two things could go inside, right? So yeah, don't undertake this stuff lightly. Yeah. Is the takeaway. Yeah. There seems to be this propensity of people wanting jujitsu to fix them. Yep. They've got a problem or at least they perceive they do. And part of why they're going to jujitsu is because they think that that's the cure. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. This kind of gets into that whole jujitsu is therapy discussion, right? Yeah. You'll hear people say this and you'll hear people say jujitsu saved my life. And look, I don't want to try to reinterpret or, or detract from anyone's personal experience. I can't speak on behalf of anyone else and how they lived their life. But I think it's dangerous to market jujitsu as this cure for what ails you because it's very easy to hear these statements and think, well, I don't need a therapist. I can just go to jujitsu, right? That I don't think yeah. is the message that we want to be sending to people. <laughs> that is kind of this magical cure-all. Jiu-jitsu can be a tremendously powerful vehicle for personal growth, as we've talked about. But for the same reason, I don't think you want to make it the core of your identity. You don't want it to also be the solution to all of your problems. Yeah, trust me, folks, as somebody who talks regularly, at least, you know, a couple times a month to a therapist and trains a lot of jujitsu, you know, Emily's really great at a lot of things, but I wouldn't lean on her as a therapist. <laughs> She's great as a coach. She's great at kind of entertaining these higher level questions of what am I getting out of this martial art? How does it support my life holistically? But there are just certain skills that a mental health professional, whether they're like a, you know, a social worker or a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist, they're just going to be able to do for you that your jujitsu instructor, unless they're a licensed professional, just can't do. It's, yeah. it's the unfortunate reality or maybe fortunate reality. Let me ask you then, you know, if I can give you a time machine, you can go back in time, you can talk to White Belt Joe. When it comes to finding meaning in the sport, after all you've learned in the time you've been doing it, what advice would you give to someone in your perspective, starting out from the beginning, when it comes to managing this relationship with your purpose and finding your purpose? What kind of advice do you give to people who are just at the, the very beginning of this journey? Well, what I would say to specifically to me is open your heart. You know, so much of what I'm doing, talking to you on this podcast and doing my own podcast is just kind of letting people see what's in my heart and what's in my head, which is not something that I've done in like a free flowing way before. As a writer, you know, everything's very controlled. It's very safe. You spend some time arranging some pixels on a Word document and you release it out into the world and people either react to it or they don't. But this sort of like 
extemporaneous uh, verbal jazz is not some, it terrifies me, frankly. But when you do it, when you relate to people in this way, it's incredibly transformative in the same way that rolling in real time is transformative. So that's what I would say to Joe. As far as like what I would say to other people in terms of like where you're at in your journey, I think I would say two things. The first is that you really need to own your jujitsu and it's hard to own your jujitsu in the beginning when like you don't know anything. Like when you're a white belt, I think it's ill-advised to become a YouTube blue belt. But the more you progress through your journey and the more you kind of determine what you're attracted to in the sport, what techniques you like, the more you can kind of start to shape your own development, the more meaningful your transformation is going to become. And the other thing I would say to anybody getting started is, you know, loosen up, (laughs) smile a bit. Don't take this so seriously. Uh, You know, one of my teammates, uh, this guy Colin said, we both took losses at Masters Worlds. And he said something along the lines of like, there are no sad stories. Like we really, you can't tell yourself a sad story about this experience. You can look at it objectively and you could say, okay, I did X, Y, and Z wrong. I need to improve on these three things. Here's my plan. But it's absurd when you think about what this sport is. A bunch of people in pajamas or Lycra trying to strangle each other. And we spend all this money to go to these tournaments all over the world. And we have this whole cottage industry of apparel and equipment that we keep afloat. And you know, we argue over athletes and their performance and who's better than this and who's better than that. I'm constantly blown away by how beautiful it is and how absurd it is. And when you keep your eye on that absurdity, kind of the divine comedy that plays out on the mats every single time we train, it really just makes the whole experience that much more enjoyable. Yeah. This is something that all of us who train lose sight of as we get deeper into the jujitsu forest, which is this whole sport is fucking absurd on its face, right? (laughs) If you had to explain to a space alien what jujitsu is. And you couldn't just get away with saying, oh, it's jujitsu. It's a martial art. It's like the UFC with no striking. If you had to actually explain it and say, look, I put on a $200 pair of combat pajamas and I go to a padded room and me and a bunch of strangers sweat and slobber all over each other trying to simulate murder, but we don't actually murder the person. And then when one person gives up, it's over and we're all happy and we're fine. And I find this to be a very, very uplifting and enjoyable experience. It's absurd on its face what we're talking about. But yet I can't deny, you know, I didn't do this for as long as I have because it's not fun. It's a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah. To me, that I think would be the main advice that I would have is jujitsu, why ever you do it, however you do it, with whoever you do it with, no one can tell you what your goals should be in jujitsu. But the one thing that should be constant is it has to be fun. If you can't be having fun doing this, there's no point. You're not going to stay over the long term. There's a lot of people who train jujitsu and they're miserable. And I think that's really unfortunate. I was talking to a coach um, just earlier today about this, and this coach was talking about all of these efforts they've made to bring the very best learning and development methodologies into their gym. And so they've, you know, totally ramped it up to produce the best competitors they can. That sounds all well and good. Problem is they made their students miserable. Right. And so (laughs) what is the point of having the very best methods if no one wants to hang around and train with you, I guess, is the question. I think that's one thing that I've learned is that more than anything, I mean, more than performance, more than what works at ADCC, the most important thing is you have to enjoy this for whatever reason that is for you. Yeah, you got to, you know, Josh, one of the things Josh always says is that you got to find the love. 
you know, whenever we're working with clients who are taking on training as a way of life, and when I'm trying to find a physical practice for somebody to do, I always remind them that we have to find the love here. Because if you don't love this thing, if I'm just sending you to go rowing every day and you hate being out on the Charles River rowing, you're never going to get the juice out of it. And jujitsu is that thing that I so love. And it's transformative because it, it all kind of grew out of that seed of love. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Joe, that was an awesome chat, man. Before we tie this up, anything you want to share that we didn't talk about yet? Any closing thoughts or big ideas we should close on? You know, I would just say, I don't know if this is a big idea, but I think that jujitsu is, it's a beautiful physical practice and it can be awe-inspiring too in the right frame of mind, but it doesn't leave a lot of room for introspection. Or I should say the room is there, but not a lot of us walk into it. And I think that there's a richness to when you really sit down and consider these things, when you really think about perhaps maybe you journal on it a bit, perhaps you take up some sort of meditation practice or something like that, it really kind of brings a balance to this outward looking explosive martial art to then like go inward and try and find the, I guess that would be the yin to the yang would be the right way of phrasing it. Yeah. Think about that. And I'm not, I don't want to be prescriptive or anything like that, but I think that there are many people in this sport who could use a bit more introspection. Fantastic advice. Joe, if people want to check out your podcast or contact you or follow you, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, sure. So the podcast is out there everywhere. There are podcasts. There's a video version too on YouTube, which is listenable. You don't have to it's just me sitting in my office in front of my current backdrop talking to the camera. So there's no real visual stimuli behind that. Definitely have a face for radio, especially with my with its current configuration. But yeah, so wherever there wherever you listen to podcasts, BJJ Meditations is there. It's on YouTube. We're on Instagram, BJJ underscore meditations. I just post clips. I don't have like a huge Instagram presence. I'll post a clip or two from each episode and just a reminder that that it's out. Be launching the website soon. That'll be bjjmeditations.com. You know, Steve, just let me know when you're public. We're going to publish this episode. I'll make sure the website is up there. The cool thing about BJJ Meditations, a lot of people don't realize this unless you've been with it for the ground, ground floor, is that this is literally my training notebook made public. So I'll train and I'll jot down a quick reflection on my training. And it's almost always thematic. It's almost never technical related to my training. It's about these bigger questions that I'm entertaining. And that gets posted as a short blog post. And then the podcast episode is me kind of coloring around doing that verbal jazz, coloring around what the essay is about and exploring it in real time. So BJJ Meditations is sort of like a multi-dimensional experience. We're going to be migrating those essays over to the website and probably putting out a newsletter, as you suggested, Steve, where that's maybe like a weekly update that goes out. So definitely check out BJJMeditations.com. We'll have that ready to go by the time this post. Awesome. And I'll put those links in the show notes. So if anyone has forgotten all of that already, just pop open your podcast <laughs> player. Uh, there'll be links there to all of Joe's stuff and BJJ meditations. I'll also put links to all of our stuff. It all lives at bjjmentalmodels.com. For those who don't know, there are well over 250 episodes now of timeless free content there for you to enjoy. Definitely recommend going back and checking out some of the highlights. We also have our own newsletter, like Joe said, it's completely free. Every Monday, we send out show notes alongside the podcast to the newsletter. Every Friday, we send out a thought piece that accompanies the episode. It's free again, so I definitely recommend signing up. You can get that again at bjjmentalmodels.com. If you want to kick things up to the next level with us, that's where our premium service comes into play. 
BJJ Mental Models Premium is the main product we offer to help people uh, actually accelerate their jujitsu growth. If you sign up for our, this a subscription site, you're going to get a few things. First thing you're going to get is complete access to the entire BJJ Mental Models audio course library. We've built, um, as far as I know, the biggest and best audio library of its kind in the sport of jujitsu. It includes courses from Emily Kwok, like you mentioned. Rafael Lovato Jr., Andrew Wiltsey, Claudia Duvall. There's a ton more. We're always building and expanding on it. You also get direct coaching from our black belt review team, including quite literally some of the best black belts in the world. It's a, an amazing opportunity to get direct feedback from elite athletes and coaches that you just simply can't reproduce at the gym. Um, you'll also get access to our amazing community on Discord. And beyond all of that, we're starting to actually expand this into not just me talking, but into a much broader podcast network. So we have an amazing podcast on premium called The Highest Levels, hosted by Joe here and Emily Kwok, multi-time black belt world champion. Um, I have been loving the chats that you guys have had so far. The last one was a really, really cool one, just kind of an exploration of coming to conclusions, decisions, judgment. Uh, Joe, we got to hear a lot about your personal story, and I really appreciate you telling that. That was a fun one to listen to. So again, all of that's bundled into premium. Check it out if you haven't already. There's a free trial. BJJMentalModels.com is where you go to get it. But Joe, thanks a lot, man. Really appreciate having you on here. Hope your eye recovers. I mean, I, I think you could pull off an eye patch if you needed to. But I can tell you from experience, it's very hard to roll with an eye patch on. Oh, yeah. I can imagine. Your death perception is just gone. <laughs> Steve, thank you very much. It's amazing to be on the other side of the microphone, uh, so to speak. And you're just, you're doing beautiful work here. And I believe in the transformative power of this kind of stuff. So thanks for putting it out into the world. So you too, buddy. I think that the philosophy and the why side of jujitsu, the conceptual side, think not just the how do I do this move side, but more the the broader framework around why you would do this and how you learn and why you learn. It just it adds so much value and depth to your life. And it's so transferable too, right? I mean, if I teach you how to do an arm bar, that's pretty much non-transferable to any other context, unless <laughs> you want to be an MMA fighter. Yeah. But for the broader context around how do you get better? How do you find meaning? How do you learn how to learn? Those things you can take with you to any avenue of life. And that's what I love doing on the show. I know you do a lot of that on yours as well. So also thank you to you because the more people who go out there and share this message, I think the better the sport of jujitsu is going to be. Thanks, Ben. Awesome. And thanks to the listeners as well. We'll talk to you next time. Take care.